Hello and welcome back to the Ethics of Literature. Today we are kicking off our discussion proper with the first artist and writer on our list, namely Leo Tolstoy, one of the absolutely standout authors and absolutely standout thinkers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, yeah, we got to talk about Tolstoy himself before we can actually talk about his ideas and, and his thoughts on art here. Um, I've definitely been kind of pitching this series as, you know, this fatalistic topic that has ruined many lives. Tolstoy definitely had more going on than just his thoughts on art, though. Um, but his thoughts on art very much reflect the conversion that was going on in his own life at this particular time. Um, in the 1870s, leading into the 1880s, Tolstoy apparently had a major crisis of faith and morality, which led him ultimately into a radical conversion. He became what he, what many scholars at this point are calling a Christian anarchist, um, which I find awesome and am very sympathetic to in general. Um, but basically he took a very hard line, very sort of rigorous approach towards Christianity. I'm tempted to say conservative here, but that's definitely not the case. Um, he was very much sort of run out of the Orthodox, or at least the Russian Orthodox Church by his contemporaries, um, to the point that they wouldn't even let him be buried in an Orthodox cemetery. Um, the, I actually stumbled across the picture of Tolstoy's grave when I was looking for images to sort of represent this lecture series on my website. Um, so if you're wondering why there's this tiny little fence, and that's the, the image that this series is represented by, that's actually Tolstoy's grave out in the middle of nowhere, all alone, separated from all other graves, because he literally was excommunicated by his own church for his radical views. Um, now, honestly, like, looking at it now, it's probably not all that radical, but the legacy remains complicated. Um, Tolstoy was very much kind of kicked out by the academic community for his radical views, was kicked out by the Russian literary community for his radical views, was kicked out of Russian Christianity for his radical views, and at the same time, a lot of those views very much filtered down over the ages. A lot of Christian anarchist communes have been built sort of on Tolstoy's thought. He was apparently very influential to Mahatma Gandhi in the later part of his career, um, and we need to talk about this. We need to talk about the Tolstoy that was, the Tolstoy that came to be, and what that means for his take on art here. Um, and what we also need to recognize is, in addition to kind of Tolstoy the activist, the guy who's writing these essays and these stories very much motivated by his, his sort of new morality... Um, it's not like he was a he was a joke before. Like both Anna Karenina and War and Peace were written before his grand conversion. Um, Anna Karenina, you can see hints of that sort of moral trajectory uh, in in the notes of the novel. But Tolstoy himself refuted, like rejected his own work prior to his conversion. Said that it was ultimately amoral, um, contributing overall more harm than good. Um, and we'll see him talk about that in in what is art next week and the week after. Um, for now, though, we should emphasize that there are these sorts of two parts to Tolstoy's life. And both of them are very remarkable. Um, again, Anna Karenina and War and Peace are no joke. 
Like, these are widely considered to be two of the greatest novels ever written. Like, if you haven't read Anna Karenina, go read Anna Karenina. It's freaking amazing. It holds up to this day, no problem. Um, the Peter Volokonsky translation is excellent, but you could just as easily read Elmer Maud or any of the other translations and get all you need to get out of it. Um, it's wonderful, and we will hear many of our authors taking apart Anna Karenina in the in the readings to come. So you know it's a good thing to have to have a decent understanding of at this point. Um, but Tolstoy rejected it. Like this is going to be one of those works that author after author is going to hold up as this exemplar of moral fiction, and Tolstoy himself thought it was not that it did not meet his rigorous criteria going forward into his life. Um, and that's remarkable in its own right. Like, Tolstoy was a profound observer of human behavior, a profound writer, a capable artist, and then kind of gave that up. Like, he's definitely no slouch after his conversion. Um, many of his sort of stories and, and novels and so on are considered inferior to these works, but it's a complicated business trying to separate the old Tolstoy from the new Tolstoy. Like, yeah, Anna Karenina is amazing, and arguably no other novel has ever achieved, you know, the sort of like broadness of scope and, and insight of character that Anna Karenina achieves. But it doesn't change the fact that a lot of Tolstoy's greatest short stories, stuff like Master and Man or the Kreuzer Sonata um, or, you know, the, the Death of Ivan Illich, um, all of these were written after his conversion, and his morality hangs over a lot of these stories. Um, but it's also not just his morality. Like, a lot of this was, you know sort of in its nascent form before Tolstoy made his conversion. Um, you'll notice in Anna Karenina and in War and Peace and virtually all of his writings prior to his grand sort of moral conversion, um, that Tolstoy has always had an eye especially on the Russian peasants. Um, you'll see that repeated over and over in these essays, that Tolstoy is very sympathetic to those peasants, that he gets especially grumpy when people ignore the lower classes, um, and that Tolstoy kind of emerges as this champion of the lower classes. That was definitely there in Anna Karenina and elsewhere before his grand moral conversion. Like... Um, in Anna Karenina, you can definitely see, like, Levin is wrestling with his own sort of spiritual crisis and ultimately finds peace and, and sort of contentment in spending more time with his own peasants, getting to know them better, spending, or, like, doing the same work that they've been doing, and importantly, not considering himself any greater than they are, um, which is, again, something that Tolstoy seems to emphasize pretty frequently in his work. Um, which kind of means that in addition to this sort of Christian religious spiritual dimension to his morality, we also have to recognize that Tolstoy is very interested in class. Um, and there is a clear sort of Marxist separation, a Marxist morality behind him. Um, and many socialists have sort of pointed to Tolstoy as being a major inspiration for them as well. Um, so we have a lot of Tolstoys to kind of wrestle with here. Um, and we should emphasize, too, that most of the essays that we're reading for today are written after this conversion. Um, and What is Art, in 1897, was written well after this conversion. It's considerably later in his life, after he has sort of adopted these new moral principles, and after he's sort of more rigorously analyzing art through this moral lens. Now, we should also recognize that this is kind of a problem in its own right. 
Um, like, don't get me wrong, Tolstoy is an amazing writer, whether before or after the conversion. That I, there's no question in my mind that that is the case. Um, but the reason why what is art and Tolstoy's writings on art across the board are sort of controversial in their own right, the reason why they're sort of ambiguously received by the academic community, and again, part of the reason why this entire topic of discussion that I have embarked upon is difficult to talk about in academic circles, at least part of this is because Tolstoy seems to have narrowed his focus when he, in fact, adopts his rigorous moral attitude toward art. Um, Anna Karenina shows a lot of immorality by Tolstoy's lights, but that shows a wider breadth of understanding and perspective by most readers and scholars and critics. Um, and as much as many of Tolstoy's masterpieces of short fiction were written after his conversion, scholars and critics are usually pretty quick to point out that they are kind of moralizing. Um, and this is something we're going to be wrestling with a lot over the course of this discussion, so it's all the more reason to talk about it here and now. We need to know that, again, everyone's got an axe to grind here. Um, there are no neutral figures in the whole moral art discussion. Um, everybody has an attitude on what art is for, and most of the people who are criticizing Tolstoy for being a lesser artist after his conversion, are very much sort of embracing this art-for-art's-sake morality that Tolstoy himself is rejecting here. Um, and it's not quite clear who's on the side of the angels. Um, I think Tolstoy makes some missteps here, and I want to talk about that. Um, especially, I think, his reading of Chekhov is particularly short-sighted. Um, but at the same time, to reject the moral dimension of art is ridiculously short-sighted. You know, as I said in my original lecture, like, talking is moral. That's, that's so manifestly obvious that we shouldn't even be asking questions about it. And many of those same art-for-art's-sake critics tend to avoid that, tend to evade the responsibility of the artist in some respect or another, um, as we'll see with Maritain especially. Um, who is kind of like our representative for the art-for-art-sake perspective. Um, so keep this in mind, that we need to, first of all, understand what Tolstoy is doing, understand what Tolstoy is saying, recognize his sort of attitude, and, and sort of see what he's trying to tell us about art and, and appreciate it in its own right. But we also do need to sort of stand behind it, stand over it, regard it as the very specific perspective of a man going through some very difficult idealistic conversions, and arguably that that actually lessens the force of his work rather than makes it greater. If art is exactly what Tolstoy says, then in theory Anna Karenina isn't the novel we should all be pointing to as the greatest work of Tolstoy's career. Instead, you would think it would be Resurrection. But nobody reads Resurrection, nobody cares about Resurrection, I've read Resurrection, and it's very preachy and difficult to get through. And that is kind of a problem. So we need to talk about this. And I, before we get into like the nitty-gritty of his details, I just wanted to lay this out. We're going to be looking at Tolstoy as someone who has been changed. Whether that change is damage, or growth, or both, or some more complicated relationship of the two, 
we're going to have to keep that in the back of our minds as we look through his work and sort of judge what the merit of his argument actually is. And on the one hand, we are going to be judging the merits of his philosophy, his aesthetics here, but we're also going to be judging them against the worth of his own work. One of the great things about talking about Tolstoy in this way is that he is both one of the best examples and, for that matter, counterexamples of his arguments, even as he is making his arguments. Um, so let's keep this whole thinker in mind. Um, in all of his dimensions, in all of his complexity, let's look at Tolstoy and what he has to say about art, both psychologically, philosophically, from the art critical perspective. Let's try and keep all of that in mind. Um, now today we're reading a bit of a hodgepodge, um, and I should probably preface this by saying that a lot of the reason why I'm picking the, the essays I do is because, for me, they're all in the same book. Um, and that's kind of misleading here, um, because I honestly have no friggin' idea where I got this book. Like, I'm pretty sure I ordered it from the internet back in, like, 2006 or something. You know, back when Amazon.com was just a tiny fledgling company that was basically just a bookstore and nothing else. Um, and this copy that I'm reading from is very janky. Like, it is very clearly a reprint of an older text, but the actual information about that text is kind of absent here. Um, it is it is supposedly an Oxford University Press edition uh, from the World's Classics Collection. Uh, it is What is Art and Essays on Art by Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud, which Maud was a friend of the Tolstoy family, knew Tolstoy in his last years, and did a whole bunch of translations of Tolstoy's various works. Um, in fact, he was kind of like Tolstoy's go-to English translator, from what I understand. Like, Garnett may have gotten the, the translations of uh, Anna Karenina and War and Peace out first, because at that point she was just translating everything that seemed important in Russian, especially those novels. Uh, but Maud is definitely the one that Tolstoy was leaning on later and later into his career. So I have this book, translated by Elmer Maud, that includes, admittedly, What is Art, the big book that we're definitely going to be focusing to the next two weeks on, but also a number of other essays on art sort of collected by Tolstoy and presented to Maud, so far as I can tell. Um, and those essays include Schoolboys in Art, dating back to 1861, the first, like, the, by far the earliest work in the collection, and the only one taking place before Tolstoy's conversion, um, On Truth in Art from 1887, The Introduction to Emiel's Journal from 1893, the introduction to S.T. Semyonov's Peasant Stories from 1894. The introduction to the works of Guy de Maupassant from 1894 as well. Um, the essay on art which is not the same thing as Tolstoy's philosophical work, What is Art? It's sort of like an earlier, smaller version of the thoughts that he's going to have, but we are going to talk about it today. Um, as far as I can tell, though, there's like no place on the internet where you can find this anymore. I, I, I went looking, um, and between the fact that it's too close to What is Art, so if you're like Google searching Tolstoy on art, you're inevitably going to get What is Art. Um, good luck trying to track that one down, I'm afraid. Um, as well as, of course, uh, what is art and its preface and the appendices, but also the preface to von Polenz's Der Butnerbauer, which we'll talk about, even though that one never got an English translation, and the afterword by Tolstoy to Chekhov's story Darling from 1905. Um, all of these, like I said, are in the same book that I'm literally holding in my hand right now. 
And I literally went online trying to track down this book to see if it just exists, if anyone acknowledges its existence. And as far as I can tell, nobody does. Like, I think I found it on Amazon, but it's weird. Um, and I should emphasize, this is clearly a reprint of something before. Again, that Oxford World Books edition, probably dating back to, like, 1930, is what the original basis of this text was. But this is clearly just a photocopy or a scan or something. Like, there are chunks missing from the text when things went wrong like it, the entire like left side of a paragraph will just be missing for no reason in this text like i don't even think this book has an isbn number it just like there's a barcode at the back along with printed in the united states of america and that's it and i actually have a lot of these at this point like when you're buying books on the cheap you run into amazon's really quick and dirty reprints pretty frequently sometimes they can be super useful um, like, I found some really great old philosophy works by old scholars that have long since sort of been put out to pasture that have been collected and reprinted for just for this purpose. Um, or alternatively, some great theological works that I've tracked down, like, that were really influential in their day historically, they have been collected, preserved, and reprinted in this way. But I'm pretty sure they're printed on demand. Um, like, it's literally just scanned, copied, printed, sent, and that's the whole process. Um, so, yeah, I don't blame you if you can't track down all these essays, but I do want to talk about them before we talk about what is art, because I want to sort of look at the development of Tolstoy's thought here, as well as the way that his conclusions come about. Plus, the advantage of looking at the smaller essays, especially in this greater context, is it lets us do that thing that I was talking about in the first lecture that is kind of the foundation of this whole discussion of ethics and art, even though it's not really terribly successful. Namely, a lot of these, a lot of the ideas, a lot of the development of this understanding of art as an ethical medium and our discussion of the ethical consequences come from not these big sweeping philosophical theories like Tolstoy's What is Art or Gardner's On Moral Fiction or Sartre's What is Literature, but rather from these one-off little essays that presume to look at just one artist, their particular work, and as a consequence end up sort of retroactively illuminating the value of the critic's philosophy of art, the value of the person looking at this work, and what they value about these stories. Like, this happens all the time. Um, I've talked a lot elsewhere about the way that the canon works, how the literary canon is very much kind of built by various writers and critics commenting on the work of other various writers and critics. And when Tolstoy says, hey, this Guy de Maupassant guy is actually really interesting, because Tolstoy is already a pronounced and important writer, everyone's like, hey, maybe we should pay attention to Maupassant. Um, this happens all the time. This is how the academic idea of the canon comes to be. Um, and as a consequence, to this day, you'll have people sort of looking back at various works, and that will be sort of our glimpse into their own philosophy of art. So, for example, I was recently reading a collection of Ursula K. Le Guin's essays on writing and writers, um, one of which, ironically enough, is actually on the first line of Anna Karenina. All fam uh, happy families are the same, uh, but uh, all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. And how Le Guin was kind of grumpy about this, because she lived in a happy family, and it was hardly boring. Um, likewise, Le Guin has a whole essay on Cordwainer Smith, and why she wishes that all of the rediscovery of man at, or stories were still in publication. 
all of these essays, as much as they are not systematic and do not contribute to some overall overarching philosophy of art and literature as written by Ursula K. Le Guin, do give us a good idea of what Le Guin's own thoughts on art and literature are. It shows us what they value. So since I don't want to get into the weeds there, like, A, I don't have the knowledge base, like I do not read enough literary criticism or arts reading about or writing about artists to be able to give us a kind of definitive look at what are the most important essays on essays on essays um, in the history of literary criticism slash artists writing about art. Like, I just don't have it. Um, as much as I want to be able to do that, I can't. So the great sort of opportunity presented to us by these collections, you know, like I have Tolstoy's collections of essays on art uh, combined with what is art. I have Sartre's collection of essays on art combined with his what is literature. I have quite a few of uh, Derrida's essays on art. Like this gives us an opportunity to look not just at, you know, this essay on this book, but also to sort of incorporate that into the greater work of that writer and their greater actual formalized philosophy of art in general. So why are we reading Tolstoy on Guy de Maupassant or Tolstoy's discussion of Der Butenbauer, which again is not in English translation so far as I can tell. Like I was reading that essay and I was like, wow, that does sound really cool. No, I want to read that. And I looked up von Polenz and like, unless you're going to read it in German, just get lost. Alas, for not having enough knowledge of enough languages to be able to read everything I want to read. Um, as much as these are ran random and weird, I do want to sort of talk about the dynamic, how this kind of writing works, um, how this contributes to Tolstoy's overall thought, especially since so many of these essays precede what is art. It's clearly an idea that or the ideas in what, are, what is art are clearly being developed by Tolstoy for years leading up to the publication of the actual book of philosophy, um, the actual aesthetic masterpiece that people still go back to to this day, the one that you can easily find on Amazon or Google if you just type in Tolstoy and what is art. Um, so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the development. Um, and with that in mind, I want to start with the earliest essay in this collection, namely Schoolboys and Art. Which is kind of not even an essay. Um, it's very misleadingly even about art. Because it's literally structured as a sort of memoir-style short story, you know, back when that was sort of not its own category or genre. And it's Tolstoy, the school teacher, basically hanging out with a bunch of kids, walking them home after their lessons, and having a sort of informal conversation, as teachers and students in this situation would, um, where the kids are sort of distracted by all sorts of things, but occasionally they get at something really profound and meaningful, even if they don't linger on it or sort of professionally expound upon it. And all of this happens in the context of yet another important short story that perhaps we should be familiar with, namely Gogol's rendition of the fairy tale V. And even calling it a fairy tale is misleading. This is in the Ukrainian series of, of folk tales and, and myths, which Gogol himself kind of recorded and published for a Russian audience. Um, and I definitely do not have the time to get into the whole Ukrainian versus Russian politics, literature, art discussion right now, like, good God, that would take the entire rest of this discussion, and we definitely can't afford it for, like, a passing reference in a minor essay by Tolstoy. Um, but the story is effectively 
this folktale that Gogol has sort of like doctored and polished up for his own purposes um, about this philosopher slash theologian who like wanders into this Ukrainian town. I think it is in fact Kiev, like calling it a town is again misleading here. Um, convinced that he knows everything that there is to know about philosophy and theology and convinced that all those folk tales are just nonsense and that the peasants are just unnecessarily superstitious. And in the process, he crosses a witch, gets turned into a pig and ridden around Ukraine and Russia for a while. And then this other philosopher slash theologian takes a bet to go into a deserted church in the middle of the night, um, is immediately overcome by all these demons and devils and stuff in traditional Eastern European mythological, in the traditional Eastern European mythological sense. Um, and finally, when he has protected himself enough from these folks, the grand horror V with his, like, iron face and his ridiculously drooping eyelid shows up, asks the demons and devils to let him open his eyes, and because he apparently needs help, and then, like, kills this th philosopher-slash-theologian on the spot with just the look that he gives him. Um, and it's important to note that this is the context here. The Tolstoy is teaching this sort of like quintessential folktale of folktales, like a folktale itself talking about the wisdom of folktales and how, you know, the, the contemporary scholarship of, of all these bigwig philosophers and theologians is rendered utterly useless in the face of peasant wisdom and the dark powers that govern the earth. Um, it's interesting that Tolstoy uses that as the jumping off point. Like, as much as it is just a passing reference and doesn't even affect the story that much, I want to draw that connection. Because this is kind of crucial to Tolstoy's understanding. Like, again, as much as Tolstoy would probably, in his later days, absolutely reject all that pagan nonsense... Um, as, you know, a thoroughly converted Christian critical of all of pagan philosophy and literature. Note that Tolstoy is teaching this probably because he is sympathetic to the philosophy underlying it. This idea that peasant wisdom exceeds the wisdom and self-proclaimed intelligence of all of these upper classes. You know, again, Tolstoy is probably connected to Christianity through his connection to the peasants, not the other way around. Weird as that may be to say. Now, the kids are all just psyched about the story. Like, this is this is Star Wars to them. They are excited about, you know, the, the characters. They're excited about the black magic. Like, one of them is pretending to be the witch, and one of them is pretending to be the philosopher, and then they'll switch. Like, they're doing what kids do in this situation. But as they're like, bopping around, doing their thing, having their conversation, Tolstoy remarks that they start in on this very brief conversation about art. What is drawing for, one of the kids asks, and why write well? Um, and they don't really come to an answer here. Like, Tolstoy is clearly sort of pointing them in a certain direction, um, but some of the other students are sort of like picking this question apart, like what is a stick for and what is a lime tree for, he asks. And Tolstoy sort of like pushes them. Yeah, what is a lime tree for? And they come up with some pretty practical solutions, like you're supposed to cut down lime trees and, you know, turn them into boards, and then the boards can be used to build 
houses. So there's sort of like this very pragmatic, quasi, you know, communist, like, what is the purpose of the thing? Well, it's usefulness to humans is the purpose of the thing. Very typical of the late 19th century and the early 20th. Um, but Tolstoy kind of says, hey, you know, but what is its use when it hasn't been cut down? Like, what is a lime tree for in and of itself? And the kids sort of land on, well, it's nice to look at. It's beautiful. It is good. And this is the connection that Tolstoy immediately makes. Pranka agreed with us, but he thought rather of moral beauty, goodness. Um, on the one hand, we've got Semka, who is sitting here saying it is only good insofar as it is useful to people, trying to get around this, like, beauty, goodness thing, and pretty much failing. He's just not wired that way. But the other kids are thinking in terms of this beauty and goodness, and recognizing that beauty and goodness are good for their own sake. That a lime tree can basically be good all on its own. And even Prong could go so far as to say, why when we take the sap of a lime, it's like taking blood. Semka doesn't, dis or doesn't agree with this, but is going quiet now that he's outnumbered by his peers. But what Tolstoy is clearly showing us here is that this means something to that. This is sort of inspiring something in these students. And like the conversation is over. That's all it is. It's just this brief sort of recognition that maybe some things in this world have worth in and of themselves. That just because it isn't, quote, useful, doesn't mean that it isn't good. That it isn't purposed, that it isn't meaningful, that it isn't beautiful, that it isn't right to have. And this is an idea that is very much in its nascent stage here. Again, this is like 1867, well before Tolstoy's conversion, he's clearly just sort of like writing a story about him hanging out with some children at this point. But it is going to inform the rest of what Tolstoy has to say. In the rest of his essays, we see this sort of development, this idea sort of build and change in certain key ways. And there are two ideas that I really want to sort of like explore and talk about. First off, because they're very prevalent here in these essays, but also because they're going to be even more prevalent in what is art when Tolstoy actually like really starts to explore these ideas. Um, first and foremost is that fundamental question, what is art for? Like, the question that Semka is asking, you know, what is the use of the thing, is one that is going to preoccupy Tolstoy as well. And Tolstoy is preoccupied by this idea, especially because he recognizes that in his world, the late 19th century, early 20th century, art has kind of gotten out of control. So as he begins his essay on art, and as we'll see, he's going to repeat a lot of these ideas in what is art, he says, In our life there are many insignificant or even harmful activities which enjoy a respect they do not deserve or are tolerated merely because they are considered to be of importance. The copying of flowers, horses, and landscapes, such clumsy learning of musical pieces as is carried on in most of our so-called educated families, and the writing of feeble stories and bad verses, hundreds of which appear in the newspapers and magazines, are obviously not artistic activities. And the painting of indecent pornographic pictures, stimulating sensuality, or the composition of songs and stories of that nature, even if they have artistic qualities, is not a worthy activity deserving of respect. And therefore, taking all the productions which are considered among us to be artistic, I think it would be useful first to separate what really is art from what has no right to that name. And secondly, taking what really is art to distinguish what is important and good from what is insignificant and 
bad. So the fundamental problem that Tolstoy is identifying here, and that he will harp on quite a bit in what is art and many of the other essays that we're reading here, is that art is kind of out of control at this point, or at least what calls itself art is out of control at this point. There's too much of it, in short. It's the late 19th century, there are publications on every newsstand, dozens of the damn things. There's too much to read, too much that's being written. All these ballets and piano concerts and recitals and, you know, accomplished women learning to play the piano forte as in Jane Austen. Like, this has become so widespread, especially among the upper classes, that Tolstoy considers it to be a kind of disease of some sort. That it is... Far from being, as we understand art today, this sort of like edifying and overwhelmingly positive phenomenon that like everybody has this creative streak that needs to be expressed in some way, that art can be used as therapy or whatever, Tolstoy is saying instead there's so much crap out there. There's so much trash masquerading as art, and most of it because it is not art or because it is bad art, typically is destructive and harmful to our sensibilities. As he'll emphasize in what is art, people are killing themselves over this practice. Like, even in On Art, he emphasizes elsewhere, you know, there are all of these destructive elements on a really practical level. All of these young ladies who give their lives away to join the ballet. All of these young men penning stupid, idiotic, and sensual verses. All of these pornographic images that he's talking about. All of that for Tolstoy is bad news. It makes us worse people. And implicit in this is this idea of art as something normative. Which is one of the first major, major ideas that I want to confront here. Um, in part because it's probably the thing about Tolstoy's philosophy of art that I most disagree with, but it's also one that I disagree with across the board. Um, Tolstoy is clearly drawing a distinction here between things that are art and things that are not art. And that many of the things that are not art look something like the things that are art. Namely, when the official Moscow Ballet puts on a performance of Swan Lake, that's art. All of these experts in their craft doing their work, trying to make something beautiful, meaningful, and possibly moral, depending. But when some random 12-year-old girl is shoved into the ballet for her, you know, greater development and to make her seem, like, more appealing to men for being married, Tolstoy's like, that is not art. That is something less than art. That does not reach the level of art here. And this is an idea that I think we've largely preserved to this day. Like, we tend to distinguish between art and not art in much this same way. Like, we could say that everything everywhere all at once is artistic, even if it isn't capital A art, but the Marvel movies certainly are not. Um, we could say that something that is crass and commercial, like perhaps the My Little Pony cartoon series, is purely commercialism and not at all art while something that does have perhaps some greater heft and weight to it would, in fact, qualify as art. Um, there is a normative distinction here, in short. And I've never been terribly convinced by the normative distinction between art and not art. Um, I remember when I was in Boston College, 
and I was living in Somerville, in like just outside of Boston. It's weird. Boston has districts, much like New York. It's complicated. Um, but while I was living there, I don't know what was going on, but somebody was going around various like walls, buildings, whatever, like with a stencil that just said "not art" on it. And they would spray paint not art onto the side of a wall or onto the side of a building. And one day I actually saw a pumpkin with not art as like the jack-o'-lantern face. And I was like, oh my gosh, I found out who it was, which probably was not the case. And whether or not it was the case, I never got up the nerve to actually knock on the door and find out. So on some level, this was something that was going on in the vicinity of Somerville, like the entire time that I was going to Boston College. And I was fascinated by it. Like... I would wander around Somerville looking for more instances of the not-art stencil. Like, when somebody repainted a wall that covered up one of the not-art logos, I would, like, go looking for another one, or specifically go out of my way to walk past another place where it said not-art. Because to me, that's a contradiction in terms. Like, the minute somebody goes out of their way to graffiti not-art on the side of a building, there's a statement being made. There is a comment happening. You know, way back to, like, the era of Dada, when Duchamp submits his toilet as cons for consideration by the Academy of Arts in France, he's making this commentary, okay, so who gets to decide what is art and what is not art? What are the qualifications? And Tolstoy does outline them here, and I definitely want to talk about what distinguishes art from not art in Tolstoy's mind. But overwhelmingly, I find this to be gatekeeping at its worst, to be just elitism, to call art something high and mighty and something that so many other people are, like, excluded from, seems to me to be dangerous. And even more than it is dangerous, it is unprofitable. If we are not willing to consider, quote, lesser art forms as being worthy of artistic merit, then what happens when suddenly Scorsese makes Goodfellas and turns the, you know, gangster trash of the 1940s and 50s into something aspiring to art? What happens when crap sci-fi of the pulp era suddenly turns into something like Blade Runner? Um, how do you make that distinction? Like, how do you decide what qualifies as being worth the title and what does not? Because the things of the past that other people value will eventually turn into something greater as time goes on. Like, the entire 20th century has proven this over and over and over again. Like, unless you are going to write out the possibility of Sam Delaney and Ursula K. Le Guin as being, quote, artists, or for that matter, Raymond Chandler, because he writes detective novels of the same sort of trashy genre trappings of the 30s and 40s, even though he is laying artistic merit on top of it. Like, how do you decide? Who gets to make that decision? And especially here in the 19th century, that assumption is itself being overturned for the first few times. Romanticism was the dominant art form of the early half of the 19th century. And then the realists showed up and argued that romanticism had turned into this bloated, elitist, like, uh, very sort of establishment art form, and now it was the realists who were critiquing. They were the ones who were the revolutionaries. They were the ones who were pushing art forward in some way. And within 30 years, the Impressionists are doing the same thing to the realists. So 
And on some level, as much as everyone who was part of the establishment rejected the coming of realism as being crass and rejected the coming of Impressionism as being unnecessarily obscure, we generally look back upon this time and say, yeah, Turner's a master, and so is Manet, and so is Monet, and shut up. Like, Van Gogh is considered one of the greatest artists who ever lived, and most of his contemporaries considered him a trashy, like, artist who was intentionally obscuring meaning and contributing to sort of a mass, like, confusion and madness regarding art. Art changes by its very nature. And as much as I do want to examine and respect the more conservative attitudes that we're going to see in a lot of these ethical art works, I'm going to largely proceed from the perspective of an inclusive attitude towards art, a non-normative attitude towards art. Which is not to say that I don't think there is bad art out there, but that's how I prefer to talk about it. So as much as we're going to have a lot of artists and a lot of writers and a lot of critics and a lot of philosophers talking about art and not art, I am not typically going to use that. Like, when I talk about Tolstoy or when I talk about Sartre and they're making that distinction, yeah, I will probably say, you know, this is not art, this is art, and we'll talk about it as though it's this normative distinction. But as far as the rest of the narration is concerned, when you hear me lecture on my opinions on these thinkers, or when you hear me sort of like try and classify them in relation to one another, you better believe that the overarching assumption I'm going to make is that it is all art. But some of it is good and some of it is bad. Some of it is beneficial and makes the world a better place, and some of it is pernicious and causes great harm. And I will totally respect everything that Tolstoy has to say about the moral divide between, you know, good art and bad art. But I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the distinction between art and not art. That's just pointless to me. Unproductive. Um, and certainly not specific enough to help us in this particular situation. For my lights, everything that is created, be it, you know, like a masterwork by a great painter or, you know, the newest movie directed by, I don't know, like Scorsese or Spielberg or whatever, yeah, that's art. And when an eight-year-old comes to me with a picture drawn in crayon of his family, yeah, that's art too. All of it is art, across the board. It has different meanings to different people. We're not going to try and hit, like distinguish between art and not art in that respect. We can say, yes, Scorsese's work is much better than the eight-year-old's, but that's as much as we can say. And when we do say it, we're going to usually qualify it, which fortunately Tolstoy's system there is much more productive. Um... But like, just like this is one of our opportunities to talk about the big picture questions and the sort of assumptions we're going to be bringing into this discussion. This is one of the big ones for me. There is no not art for me. When Ebert says that video games are not art, I just laughed. Like I saw what Ebert was saying. I see the argument. Yes, wafer video games produce their Citizen Kane. Sure, whatever. Don't care. It is all art. Now, if you do want to have a discussion about what is art versus what is not art, we end up in the territory of ornamentation. Like, is a cup with a picture on it art? And that's where I get a little bit more fuzzy. Like, okay, so this practical object has been ornamented in some way. Does that make it art? Like, yeah, I'll entertain questions and I'll entertain objections there. But generally, if you push me, I will say, yeah, it's art. I don't, I don't care. 
Like, you scratch your initials into a tree, like, BX plus DY, like, cool. You're an artist. Duray. Like, I am willing to be totally inclusive. It is the age of the internet. Readers are writers, are critics, are everything. Like, every person on Tumblr is an artist. I am willing to concede all of that. But I'm not going to concede that they're all good artists. We'll get to that. So let's just keep that in mind. Like, Tolstoy's making a distinction here, and I think it's an interesting distinction, but I don't think it's a profitable or productive one. From where I'm sitting, it's all art. Um, whether it's good art or bad art is the real question we're going to be confronting here in this lecture series. So with that in mind, let's talk about the aspects of art that Tolstoy is talking about here. Um, in he, he is sort of developing them over the course of these essays. Like, he definitely draws the, the sort of three aspects in, uh, like, he definitely draws parallels to some of the three aspects in Amiel's journal. Um, in Semyonov's Peasant Stories, the introduction there, he specifically outlines that he has three sort of dimensions that he sees art on. Uh, but in On Art, he gives it to us very clearly. Honestly, arguably more clearly than he does in What is Art. Like, he straight up enumerates them. And this is page 54 in my edition. Um, this is chapter four of the essay. Um, Therefore, Tolstoy writes, though a work of art must always include something new, yet the revelation of something new will not always be a work of art. That it should be a work of art, it is necessary, one, that the new idea, the content of the work, should be of importance to mankind. Two, that this content should be expressed so clearly that people may understand it. And three, that what incites the author to work in his production should be an inner need and not an external inducement. Now, again, you'll notice that Tolstoy is making this distinction along those art versus not art lines. Art does at least one of these three things. Good art does all of these three things. Um, for us, we can just as easily break it down to, like, this is the difference between good art and bad art. So I'm not going to, like, you know, split hairs here. But I do want to look at each of these three ideas, each of these three criteria, because these are going to stick. As much as Tolstoy broadly is sort of rejected by, you know, so many art critics and thinkers and philosophers and writers in the future, these ideas come from a long tradition and sort of contribute to a long tradition as well. And they're kind of hard to navigate around. Um, if anything, the third criteria is the one that's sort of the most debatable, like how can you say whether or not somebody is being sincere in what they're writing? Uh, but it is there to some degree, and I do want to talk about it as well. So first off, we have this, this idea of a importance to mankind, that there is some central idea underlying this work, and as Tolstoy says elsewhere, that the work is concerned with morality in some way. This is the content of the work. This is what the work is about. And importantly, Tolstoy emphasizes that this needs to be good. Like, good in the moral sense, in the normative sense, in the not, like, skilled but actually good versus evil sense. Like, in his essay on truth and art, he emphasizes against the purveyors of the art-for-art's-sake philosophy that you cannot call a work that does not have a moral agenda a good work, no matter how well-constructed it might be. If it is promoting bad behavior, it is bad art. Um... And this is something that we're going to be confronting a lot. It is one of the central tenets of Tolstoy's philosophy on art, and it is one of the most controversial 
tenets of Tolstoy's philosophy on art. Again, the art for art's sake people are going to get super powerful in the years after Tolstoy. Heck, they're super powerful in the days of Tolstoy. Um, Tolstoy is writing what is art just a handful of years before George Bernard Shaw is going to be doing his whole Nietzsche Superman thing and kind of serves as the paradigm for a lot of the Nietzschean uh, ideas that Tolstoy is sort of critiquing and poking at. Um, here in his work. So keep in mind, Tolstoy is going to largely lose this fight as far as academia is concerned, but this is also kind of one of the most central and crucial ideas for us to talk about in this lecture series. When I say that art is moral, I am agreeing with Tolstoy, and I am agreeing against a lot of Tolstoy's contemporaries and critics, let's say. I think it is manifestly obvious. Tolstoy thinks it's manifestly obvious. Most critics today would think it's manifestly obvious when framed in a different light. But at the same time, most of those critics would argue it isn't necessary. Though we'll talk about that in its own right. Now, we should emphasize, for Tolstoy, this can take a wide variety of different sorts of morals. Like, Tolstoy isn't going around saying, like, it either promotes Christianity or is totally immoral. He's got moments like that, and we'll, we'll see a couple of them. Um, but when he says that a work of art is moral, when it has something important to say, when it is you know, saying something important to human beings, he is emphasizing that it doesn't have to be purely Christian. Like, he praises Guy de Maupassant despite the fact that Maupassant is not Christian, specifically because he argues that Maupassant is searching for Christianity and doesn't know it. Like, this is one of the important ideas that you're going to see in Tolstoy's criticism a lot. Tolstoy is frequently going to look at various artists and say they are very skilled, they are very talented, they can do items two and three very, very well, but they are confused about item number one. And that's usually the way that he frames it. They are confused. Tolstoy stands as this sort of moral arbiter here, saying, you know, I know better than Maupassant what Maupassant is trying to say, because Maupassant is reaching for this truth that I already have, namely Jesus. And this is not subtle here. Like, Tolstoy is very much emphasizing, you know, Christian teaching, Christian tradition is exactly the goal here, and ultimately, like, if it isn't contributing to Christianity, then it is, at the end of the day, you know, some kind of bankrupt. But it is couched here. Um, as much as Christianity is sort of the obvious solution, it isn't sort of the solution that Tolstoy points to necessarily. So, on page 55, he elaborates here, It will be said that every work contains something needed by man, and every work will be to some extent intelligible, and that an author's relation to every work has some degree of sincerity, i.e., all art falls into these categories to some degree. Where is the limit of needful content, intelligible expression, and sincerity of treatment? A reply to this question will be given us by a clear perception of the highest limit to which art may attain. The opposite of the highest limit will show the lowest limit, dividing all that cannot be accounted art from what is art. The highest limit of content is such as is always necessary to all men. That which is always necessary to all men is what is good or moral. The lowest limit of content, consequently, will be such as is not needed by men and is a bad and immoral content. Now, there's a footnote here. 
And it is probably one of the most telling footnotes I have ever encountered in all of my scholarship. Tolstoy emphasizes that when he says that which is always necessary to all men is what is good or moral, like, yes, we can all generally agree that moral art is necessary, that we need to be morally instructed. But the real trick here, of course, is what is moral? What is good? Christians say good is one thing, while Buddhists say good is another, while atheists say good is a third thing. So Tolstoy emphasizes, half a century ago, no explanation would have been needed of the words important, good, and moral. But in our time, nine out of ten educated people at these words will ask with a triumphant air, what is important, good, or moral? Assuming that these words express something conditional and not admitting of definition, and therefore I must answer this anticipated objection. I.e. Tolstoy knows that he lives in a skeptical, in a atheistic age. He recognizes that in the 18th century when Kant said this is moral, everybody was generally on the same page with him. But here in the 19th century, post Schleiermacher, post Nietzsche, post Schopenhauer, it's not so straightforward. There are lots of people contributing different ideas of what morality actually is and rejecting the existence of a sweeping morality altogether. So he goes on to say, that which unites people, not by violence, but by love. That which serves to disclose the joy of the union of men with one another is, quote, important, good, or moral. Quote, evil, and quote, immoral, is that which divides them, that leads men to the suffering produced by disunion. Important is that which causes people to understand and to love what they previously did not understand or love. Now notice, it's real easy to map Christianity onto that. Real easy. Like, especially Tolstoy's version of Christianity deriving primarily from the Sermon on the Mount, which, again, I am very sympathetic to. Super easy to see this as love your neighbor. Super easy to understand this as turn the other cheek. Super easy to see this as all the stuff that Jesus is talking about with his Beatitudes and his prescriptions against the Pharisees. It's all very clear here. But what I want to emphasize is that on some level, this is bigger than Christianity, or at least broader than Christianity. When Tolstoy says union and disunion, a sort of united by love and not by violence, he is opening the door to a lot of things that Christians generally would reject. I say generally because Tolstoy's own take on Christianity is a little bit more vague. We're not going to get into it too deeply. What I want to emphasize here is that Tolstoy is saying that any art that contributes to understanding someone else is true moral art. If it is faithful to the ideas and the rep representation of other people, it is good art. And this is another idea that we're going to hear kicked around a lot in the coming readings, in the coming scholars, etc. This idea that good art is, at the end of the day, not oversimplistic, not reductive, not contributing to some sort of polemic distaste or disgust of other people, but rather encourages and compels us to understand and identify with people who we otherwise would not. For Tolstoy, the purpose of art is to make the common people intelligible to the upper classes, because you better believe that the upper classes are reading the books and the common people aren't so much, and good art would, in theory, make us more inclined to understand people of other races, faiths, ideas, convictions, 
you name it. In that sense, a whole lot of contemporary art would fall under this masthead. Yes, it might not be Christian, but when, say, Miss Marvel invites us to understand and sort of compare notes with a person who is a young woman growing up in inner city, uh, Jersey City, who is being raised Muslim and has a lot to do at her mosque, that is, for Tolstoy, good art. Encouraging people from outside of these cultural under perspectives to understand, identify with, sympathize with, and unite with people of these other perspectives. That's the function of art. And again, we're going to see multiple other thinkers sort of riffing on this idea or modifying it in certain ways, but this is something that is going to come up a lot, and there are going to be very few writers who disagree with this formulation of this idea. Yes, we might have questions about whether this or that art is moral or immoral, but at the end of the day, we're not going to disagree with the function of art is to illuminate other perspectives. That one's going to be hard to reject which we'll get into that. But at the very least, I want to sort of like lay this on the table and emphasize that when we're talking about morality, when we're talking about, you know, the conservative versus liberal understanding of art or art for art's sake or censorship or any of the stuff that's logically going to come up in this class, we should emphasize right here at the outset that even some of the more conservative thinkers in our stable here are going to argue that understanding, compassion, sympathy, and union are the fundamental goals of art. And that's going to be really hard to upset or reject. If anything, the question then becomes, okay, so what then would qualify as bad art? And as I would sort of emphasize here, looking at it from our modern perspectives, because this is not the language that Tolstoy uses, again, reductive attitudes, reductive portrayals of various characters, that's where the problem will lie. Um, and Tolstoy kind of emphasizes this as well. He actually brings up this uh, discussion in one of his other essays that apparently he had overheard a conversation between Turgenev, um, this famous Russian novelist who had recently released The Hunting Sketches, which are all of these really small vignettes, short stories about, like, Russian peasant life, which many of them are gorgeous. Like, it's one of the few things of Turgenev's that I really, really, in fact, like. Um, but Goncharov was a city guy. Like, all of his novels take place in Petersburg or Moscow. They're all about, like, dazzling urbanites and their problems and, you know, their ennui. His most famous work is Oblomov, which is, like, this guy who just, like, lays around his house and, you know, has all of these, like, James Joyce or Beckett-esque revelations about, like, how meaningful or meaningless his life is while he's, like, not getting off the couch. Um, and... Goncharov says of Turgenev that now that the hunting sketches have been published, we're done with peasants. Like, the entire scope of the peasant experience has been correctly and completely described to us. And Tolstoy emphasizes this because, again, Tolstoy is team peasants here. He thinks that Goncharov is dead wrong. But it also shows what art is supposed to be doing here. It's supposed to take the Goncharovs of the world, these people who have no understanding or respect or, like, affinity for the lower classes, the peasant people, the people living in the countryside, and let them see what that life is like. Encourage them to see the beauty of that perspective. So Tolstoy is saying this is about reconciling differences. This is about transcending 
boundaries. This is about getting people to understand, appreciate, and sympathize with one another. So when I say that bad art is therefore reductive, Tolstoy is specifically pointing to examples where he says, hey, this writer considers peasants to not be worth their while. When Goncharov depicts a peasant, he is ignorant, he is stupid, he is violent, he is mean, and Tolstoy is grumpy about that. Because that's a stereotype, not reality. And it encourages us to think less of the peasants, to regard them as less than the human, rather than to bring them up to our level. So the primary function of art here is, in some sense, to be faithful, to be robust, to give us an actual look at a different person's lifestyle and let us, as the saying goes, walk in their shoes for a day. Give us a chance to appreciate their problems, their lifestyles, their joys, their tragedies, and as a consequence, be a little bit less quick to judge the next time we encounter someone from that group. That's what art is all about. I want to emphasize that because when all of these maniacs on the internet these days are emphasizing that real art, true art, objectively good art is not about tokenism, yeah, Tolstoy is in some sense in agreement with this. Tokenism is bad. But understanding other people's perspectives is good. That's what art is for. That is objectively art's moral work to do. That is the purpose of art in some sense. So if you're grumpy because there are too many black people in your movie, you're doing art wrong and you're doing art criticism wrong. Um, so yeah, there's a moral dimension here. It is not as Christian as you might think. It is in fact sort of at the root of most good art and it is honestly hard to find any great work of art that doesn't do this in some respect. Good art explores these perspectives, encourages us to look at things from different perspectives, encourages union among people. It does not reduce, it does not stereotype, it does not sort of degrade or, like, uh, denigrate groups of people or individuals or whoever. We are encouraged to understand the world from all perspectives by art. That is its function. Now that is not to say that truth or sincerity or realism is a necessary prerequisite for art. We'll get there. Um, but it is to say that truth in art, morality in art for Tolstoy, is about more than just whether or not things are depicted accurately. It is about getting at the insight, the perspective. Again, in that second essay, Truth in Art, he emphasizes that there are lots of stories that are full of nonsense. In this book, besides tales in which true occurrences are narrated, there are also stories, traditions, proverbs, legends, fables, and fairy tales that have been composed and written for man's benefit. We have chosen such as we consider to be in accord with Christ's teaching and therefore regard as good and truthful. Many people, especially children, when reading a story, fairy tale, legend, or fable, ask, first of all, is it true? And if they see what is described could not have happened, they often say, oh, this is mere fancy, it isn't true. But Tolstoy emphasizes, those who judge so, judge amiss. Truth will be known not by him who knows only what has been and really happens, but by him who recognizes what should be according to the will of God. He does not write the truth who describes only what has happened and what this or that man has done, but he who shows what people do that is right. 
that is in accord with God's will and what people do wrong that is contrary to God's will. Note, again, this is an earlier essay of Tolstoy's, written as another introduction to another collection of stories, but what Tolstoy says here certainly applies to this new moral axiom that we see here in the essay on art considerably later in his career. He is saying at the end of the day, yes, there is a moral objective here. Unity, bringing people together, encouraging others to see the world from each other's perspective, sort of getting over the natural disunions and frustrations and conflicts that we have in everyday life. But that does not require realism. That does not require absolute truth. That something is fictional, even fantastical, does not disqualify the work from speaking the truth. Jonathan Swift may have written a fantastic satire in Gulliver's Travels. All of these things that did not happen, could not have happened, are not possible, and therefore are ridiculous and funny to us to read. But what Swift is encouraging us to do, and what would make Swift's work moral art by Tolstoy's lights, is he encourages us to see things from the perspectives of others, and importantly, he holds up an ideal to which we should aspire. Specifically the horse people, the Huonims. Which, we'll not talk about that too much. Again, we have to keep moving. The second principle that Tolstoy emphasizes here is what I'm going to frequently call craft in this lecture, because it's probably the only way that I can distinguish between good and bad art and like good art and lousy art, or good art and poor art, good art and mismade art. Um, so if good art is moral art, art that aspires to this high objective of, you know, making people understand one another and bringing them together, um, good craft is art that is made well. Um, as Tolstoy says that this content should be expressed so clearly that people may understand it, this I should emphasize, um, Tolstoy basically equates clarity with beauty. Um, or rather, clarity with craft. Um, they are the same. They are always the same for, for Tolstoy. Uh, you express yourself clearly and as a consequence make your work more beautiful and your craft informs the clarity of your expression. Uh, this will actually be a big deal in the next reading because Tolstoy is specifically going to single out the likes of Baudelaire and Mallarmé, um, the French writers who he considers intentionally obscurantists, um, i.e. they're deliberately making their work more difficult to read, sort of like specifically going out of their way to make it so regular people can't understand what they have to say, and Tolstoy considers that morally bankrupt. Um, utterly just awful. Um, because, again, the purpose of art is to bring people together and not to sort of gatekeep when you start reading a poem. Um, we'll talk about that. Mallarmé is actually going to come up a lot over the next couple of readings. Um, like, even Derrida is going to be talking about Mallarmé. So, yeah, we better start reading Mallarmé. Consider that on the list of things to read. Um, heck, I just ordered a book of Mallarmé, because I don't know any Mallarmé. We're getting there. Um... What Tolstoy is emphasizing here is, again, this is all the same thing. A lot of the discussion of art has, is going to deal with beauty. Like, this is across the board. Like, you read Kant, you read the aesthetics of Aristotle, you read any of these other great aesthetic works that Tolstoy is drawing from, over and over and over again, you're going to hear the function of art is beauty, the purpose of art is beauty, etc., etc. Even with the art for art's sake, people, again, beauty is the primary goal of art. And Tolstoy is emphasizing that, yeah, beauty is a part of this, 
But he doesn't even use the word beauty. That's not important to him. What's more important is clarity of expression. Um, and I tend to agree with him here. I've never been a fan of the word beauty in the discussion of aesthetics because I don't know what people mean by this. Like, even when the romantics go on and on about the sublime, like, I have a pretty decent idea of what the sublime is. Like, the sublime is, you know, a sort of, like, terror and awe before art. It's sort of being overcome by your artistic experience. Like, I've got experiences that, that you know, match up with what the romantics are talking about there. I, it's specific enough that I can understand. But when you talk about beauty in the context of art broadly, I have no idea what's going on here. Like, yeah, if you've listened to my symposium lectures, you've heard me talk at length about the Socratic ideal of beauty and how beauty sort of relates to sexuality and love and all that stuff. That's cool, and I, you know, I'm, I'm ten I tend to be on board with the Socratic ideal of beauty, but when contemporary aestheticians start writing about beauty, I get very confused very quickly, because, you know, what is beautiful about a Van Gogh painting? Is it compatible with what is beautiful about, like, a Manet painting? Is it compatible with what is beautiful about a Caravaggio? Like, I don't, I don't know what the supposed characteristic that all of these things share have. And if you go a step further and say, okay, or what about Beethoven? Or what about Tolstoy? Or what about, you know, Mallarmé? Or what about, like, everything everywhere all at once? I'm going to be absolutely scratching my head to explain what it is that all of these things have in common that makes them beautiful. So this is a word I'm not going to be bringing up a lot, and it makes me happy that Tolstoy doesn't either. Yes, we are going to talk about craft. Is it finely crafted? Does it accomplish its goals? Now, for Tolstoy, again, this has to do with clarity of expression, which usually means, at least in the discussions that we have here in the 21st century, transparency. Spielberg, not like, I don't even know who to contrast him with. Who's the guy who did the Tree of Life? I suddenly forget his name for some reason. I've wanted to refer to him like three times in this lecture and somehow not managed to. Spielberg is famously transparent in his movies. Like, you never notice Spielberg's camera work, at least not until, like, the last five years or so. Like, West Side Story, you can totally see him at work there. But if you watch, like, Raiders of the Lost Ark, or Minority Report, or Jurassic Park, or Jaws, or any of his classics, his direction is almost always invisible. It is transparent. You can see through it. Scholars of cinematography, scholars of art, will in fact recognize that Spielberg is in fact tugging you around, that he is using his camera work and his direction and his shot choices to manipulate the artist, and they will resent him for that, largely because Spielberg is so transparent on his face. So, on the one hand, Tolstoy is saying Spielberg is what we want. We want Dickens. We want Tolstoy. We want artists whose style is subservient to their substance and who is, rather than trying to sort of like snow you with flourish and like elaborate artistic prose, rather than, you know, your Virginia Woolf's or your James Joyce's or your William Faulkner's, we want your Steinbeck's, we want your Hemingway's, we want it to just be clear and obvious and direct. Um... We want the expression to be clear. And you can definitely expand this. Like, I used Hemingway in that description, and that was probably wrong, because Hemingway is kind of so 
bare bones as to be obscure in his own right. But that's what I mean here. Like, you can definitely extend this. Maybe Faulkner is being clear when he gives us a book that has virtually no narration and just, like, gives us different characters' voices bouncing back and forth against one another. Uh, maybe that is clear for Faulkner. Maybe that could fall under Tolstoy's masthead. But you've got to remember that Tolstoy is a realist. He is working in the great age of realism. For him, artists who are doing great art are doing it clearly. They are not disguising their voices. They are not couching their thoughts. They are not, you know, stressing the artifice of their language over what that language is communicating. They communicate clearly. And that is Tolstoy's priority here. Now, this means for Tolstoy that good artists, artists who are good at their jobs, artists with a high level of talent and craft, communicate their ideas clearly. And this is something that he attributes to a lot of writers that he otherwise doesn't agree with. Like both for Guy de Maupassant and for Chekhov, he points out that they are extraordinarily talented, that they are excellent at craft, that they absolutely make you feel what they want you to feel. You can absolutely empathize with their characters. It is infectious, as Tolstoy uses the word a couple of times throughout these essays. It is something that naturally affects us, makes us feel what these writers and artists want us to feel. That is what he means by clarity. It is infectious, it affects us, it drives us to feel what these artists want us to feel. But Tolstoy emphasizes that this is not the only criteria, and the reason why he emphasizes that Chekhov and Maupassant are sort of inferior artists or confused is because they do have this high level of artistic craft, this high level of ability to get us to empathize, to get us to experience what they want us to experience, this clarity of expression, but it is not matched with a clear sense of morality. Maupassant especially... Uh, Tolstoy accuses of being very mixed up in his morality, and all of his novels are at some level of confusion, with the exception of his first, Un V, which is apparently like properly morally aligned, as well as being beautiful and clear. But what he is saying there is also that if you do have this ability, if you do have this sense of craft, morality will in some sense follow. So all three of these characteristics are to some degree independent, but you better believe that if you have any two of them, the third one is probably right on its heels. Because being a good artist in the sense of a talented artist will lead you to be a good artist in the sense of being a moral artist. If you see the world so clearly and are able to represent it this clearly, the language, the structure of art itself will lead you to a moral understanding of the characters involved. Maupassant doesn't understand why his work comes off so poorly when he is representing sex as the highest ideal that a human can aspire to, but that's because if he was faithful to the characters and if he was faithful to his craft, that isn't the conclusion he would reach. That's what Tolstoy ultimately is emphasizing there. Which brings us to the third one, sincerity. Again, this is the one that is probably going to be the easiest to remove from the list, like, again, when you hear contemporary scholars talking about art, they're usually going to judge it on the two axes of, is it important? Like, does it deal with some really important, significant topic? And is it well-made? Is it extremely well-crafted? 
But for Tolstoy, this third dimension is important, and I do want to talk about it because I do think it is going to become relevant in later writings, and I do think it is sort of assumed by many artists down the road. Sincerity for Tolstoy means we're not going to sell out in some sense. What incites the author to work at his production should be an inner need and not an external inducement. I am not writing because I want to get paid. You know, as Faulkner famously did in Sanctuary, where he's like, hey, you know, I realized that I could make money by writing art, so I made an art. Um, Tolstoy is stressing, no, an inner desire, an inner need drives art and the production of art. Um, and importantly, this too is discussed here. Like, he is, he is going to, in fact, elaborate there um, and emphasize that the purpose of art for the artist, then, is to explore problems that the artist has to face. That he has to contend with these issues and, and sort of like come to conclusions and solve problems and that's what art is for. Which is again something that we're going to hear again down the road. So, you know, keep that in mind. But when we're saying sincerity, what we are saying is that again, like we did in the second category, um, we can't be reductive. We cannot sort of use stereotypes, rely on tripes, on tripes, depictions or phrases. We cannot reduce people to tropes. That will be dishonest, poor craftsmanship, and uh, will also be just morally, you know, reprehensible. Um, but importantly, the, you know, what Tolstoy is saying here specifically is that we are searching for something. And when an artist sits down to write a work of art, it will only be good if that artist is coming to it with this earnest desire to solve this problem for themselves. Um, this is real abstract here, and again, I want to talk about it more, but probably not in this lecture because it's not especially clear here. He writes on page 60, Finally, to work at his subject not for external ends, but to satisfy his inner need, the artist must rise superior to motives of avarice and vanity. He must love with his own heart and not with another's, and not pretend that he loves what others love or consider worthy of love. He also describes this, especially when praising Semyonov's peasant stories. Um, he specifically writes this sort of anecdote where he says, There is a well-known story of Flaubert's which Turgenev has translated, La Légende de Julien l'Hospitalier. The last episode intended to be the most touching in the story is one where Julien lies down in the same bed with a leper and warms him with his own body. This leper is Christ, who carries Julien off to heaven with him. All this is told with great mastery, but I always remain perfectly cold when I read that story. I feel that the author himself would not have done and would not even have wished to do what his hero does, and therefore I myself do not wish to do it, and do not experience any agitation when reading of this amazing exploit. But when Semyonov describes the simplest story, it always touches me. And he goes on to describe the story that I recommended that you read, The Servant, where the guy is, like, asking his friend for a job, the, guy, the friend intercedes with the master, but the master fires this old coachman, and then the original guy overhears this, regrets having made the decision, and ultimately asks his friend to, like, discontinue trying to get him hired, and sort of leaves off, even though that means abject poverty. That's what Tolstoy is referring to by sincerity. He thinks that that is forceful. He thinks that the effect here is true, that it reflects what the author himself is trying to accomplish. Um, possibly an even more sort of descriptive uh, passage that, that Tolstoy gives us here um, 
is in on art itself. Um, he says, the process of creation, this is page 51, one common to all men and therefore known to each of us by inner experience occurs as follows. A man surmises or dimly feels something that is perfectly new to him, which he has never heard of from anybody. This something new impresses him. In an ordinary conversation, he points out to others what he perceives, and to his surprise, finds that what is apparent to him is quite unseen by them. They do not see or do not feel what he tells them of. This isolation, discord, disunion from others at first disturbs him, and verifying his own perception, the man tries in different ways to communicate to others what he has seen, felt, or understood, but these others still do not understand what he communicates to them, or do not understand it as he understands or feels it. And the man begins to be troubled by a doubt as to whether he imagines and dimly feels something that does not really exist, or whether others do not see and do not feel something that does exist. And to solve this doubt, he directs his whole strength to the task of making his discovery so clear that there cannot be the smallest doubt, either for himself or for other people, as to the existence of that which he perceives. And as soon as this elucidation is completed and the man himself no longer doubts the existence of what he has seen, understood, or felt, others at once see, understand, and feel as he does. And it is this effort to make clear and indubitable to himself and to others what both to others and to him had been dim and obscure, that is the source from which flows the production of man's spiritual activity in general, or what we call works of art, which widen man's horizon and oblige him to see what had not been perceived before. Like I said, this is the foundation of what Tolstoy is describing as sincerity here. And it is something that he's very preoccupied with. Like, as much as we have a whole bunch of essays and we sort of associate Tolstoy with being this moral artist, talking about important moral subjects, and especially Christianity, if anything, more of these essays are praising authors for their sincerity than anything else. And Tolstoy seems more upset by a lack of sincerity than any of the other flaws we might expect. Tolstoy wants sincere art, art that is pursued with this driving internal force, this will to make oneself clear that he is describing here and on art. And again, this is something we're going to hear again. But even more importantly, it definitely connects to what Tolstoy understands as being the function of art in the first place. It's about unity. This expression of oneself helps you to identify with and helps others to identify with you. That's what it's supposed to be. The artist feeling cut off, feeling alone, feeling like they see something that no one else sees, puts pen to paper, puts paint to canvas, puts music in the air, and thus compels others to see the thing that they saw. And in so doing, as Tolstoy is writing it here, and which seems honestly, shockingly close to Nietzsche, expands the limit of human experience, makes the world bigger, makes the world of human expression bigger, pushes forward the boundaries of art in general, causes us to be able to see each other better with more tools than we had originally. That for Tolstoy is sincerity. That is what motivates good art. So as a consequence, when artists don't do that, when artists are motivated by avarice, when they want money, that's where it falls apart for Tolstoy. And importantly, this is how he understands Guy de Maupassant, especially. Um, like, 
he spends a lot of time talking about Maupassant's works here, which I think I read on the internet at some point that this definitely did not get published in the original introduction to this complete works of Guy de Maupassant that was being published in Russia, which I wouldn't be surprised. Tolstoy's super critical of Maupassant uh, throughout this, this whole discussion and essay. Um, what he writes in Maupassant, what he ultimately concludes about his body of work, all of his novels and short stories, he writes, it is in this that the wonderful quality of every true artist lies, and if only he does not do violence to himself under the influence of a false theory. His talent teaches its possessor, and leads him forward along the path of moral development, compelling him to love what deserves love, and to hate what deserves hate. An artist is an artist because he sees things not as he wishes to see them, but as they really are. The man, the possessor of a talent, may make mistakes, but if only his talent is allowed free play, as Maupassant gave it free play in his short stories, it discloses, undrapes the object, and compels love of it if it deserves love, and hatred of it if it deserves hatred. With every true artist, when under the influence of his circle he begins to represent what should not be represented, there happens what happened to Balaam, who, wishing to bless, curse what should be cursed, and wishing to curse, bless what should be blessed. Involuntarily, he does not do—he does not what he wishes to do, but what he should do. And this happened to Maupassant. Now, the image here that he's using is that one that I mentioned from Numbers, 23 to 25. Like, he even quotes it in one of the other essays here. Balaam is this prophet guy who is apparently like mystically powerful and can curse and bless people. And the king of the enemies of the Israelites like summons Balaam and he's like, I need you to curse the Israelites because they're stomping around in my land and they're causing all this trouble. And Balaam gets to the top of the mountain and he's like, all right, time to curse the Israelites. And I bless the Israelites because the Israelites are awesome and their God is awesome. And the king is like, dude, what are you doing? I told you to curse them, not to bless them. And Balaam's like, Dude, it's God. Like, what do you want me to do? They they need to be blessed. I I, I like what I'm in communion with the spirits. The spirits tell me I gotta bless these people. What do you what do you want from me? This for Tolstoy is the recurring image. He uses it four times in these across these essays of what good art is supposed to do. Maupassant is not a Christian. He rejects Christianity. He belittles Christianity. He thinks that it is foul, and yet Tolstoy says that he still, at the end of the day, praises what needs to be praised because the soul of an artist cannot admit of anything else. A true artist, in seeing things as they are, in being honest with themselves, sincere and talented enough to give expression to that sincerity, must therefore praise what is moral and reject what is immoral. And while Maupassant frequently screws this up, frequently is confused about who are the good people in his novels and who are the bad people in his novels, frequently in his short stories where he's not writing for money, where he's not writing for, for press and fame, where he's not trying to convince the rich French elites that sex is awesome and is the only thing worth doing, he ultimately, at the end of the day, manages to praise good peasant values and truth and sincerity and all of the things that Tolstoy values. And you can see this. Like, I recommended three Maupassant short stories, Boule de Suif, which is very much in that category of, like, Maupassant talking about sex and Maupassant praising prostitutes, which he does a lot across his work, and it is, as a consequence, kind of confused and uncertain where it's going. Uh, but you look at something like A Piece of String or The Necklace, where you have these poor people trying to live up to the expectations of, you know, pride and, you know, 
scooping up with their neighbors and like their dignity before rich people and as a consequence like ruining themselves in a piece of string we have the character who you know insists it was just a piece of string and not a wallet even to his dying day even after his reputation is totally ruined but he is still sort of implicitly praised in society, implicitly condemned by Maupassant for this conviction. Or in the necklace, the person who is willing to work their butt off to try and replace this beautiful diamond necklace that they lost, only to discover that it was actually made of paste and was garbage the whole time and necklaces aren't worth anything. Maupassant is, at the end of the day, kind of brutally satirical, but also brutally insightful, recognizing that hard work and honesty are worth more than riches and pride. Um, those stories are classics. Those are the ones that I read in high school. Those are the ones that I have encountered over and over again in my, in my reading, whereas only once have I encountered the prostitute stories. And usually only because I was specifically going out of my way to read more Beaupassant and was unpleasantly uh, sort of like d disappointed by what I ended up finding. That's what Tolstoy is emphasizing here. And it is at its most clear in the story that Tolstoy praises the most, Solitude, which is literally just this one character delivering this long monologue about how alone they feel, how the only way to sort of like even temporarily get rid of that loneliness is in the arms of a woman through sexual congress, and how at the end of the day they wish it could be different. Tolstoy looks at that and says, that's what Balaam is trying to tell us. That's the truth. Maupassant is lost. He needs God. He needs Christianity. can't find it. And as a consequence, ends up praising the absence or recognizing the absence of Christianity, lamenting the absence of Christianity, even as he describes what he wants located in Christianity itself. As he writes a little bit later on in this essay, it is as if men thirsting in a desert sought water everywhere, except near those people who standing round a spring pollute it and offer stinking mire instead of the water that unceasingly flows beneath the mire. Maupassant was in this position. He could not believe, evidently it never even entered his head, that the truth he sought had long ago been found and was so near him. But neither could he believe that man could live in such contradiction as that in which he felt himself to be living. I want to emphasize this metaphor here. The idea that there is this desert that Maupassant is wandering around in. He is looking for water and can't find it because the one place where water is has been trampled and polluted and turned into this gross marsh by all of these people who are already standing there. I want to emphasize this because that's what Tolstoy thinks of Christianity in his age. Christianity is the swamp, the people polluting the source of the water. That is not to say that the water itself is impure, or for that matter, that Maupassant is right to leave them alone. But it is to emphasize that Christianity has become an obstacle to understanding that truth. That's probably why Tolstoy kind of wanders away from typical Christian thinking when he is talking about true morality in his essay on art. He is, at the end of the day, talking about the essence of Christianity, or what he perceives the essence of Christianity to be, which once removed from the tainted brand of Christianity can now be appreciated for the truth and profound moral wisdom that it is. Maupassant wants to be a Christian, according to Tolstoy, and can't because Christians are so bad at being Christians. That, for Tolstoy, is the purpose of art. That is what his job here is.
And I want to emphasize that this is a profound moral and spiritual calling for Tolstoy. His job is to clear those waters, to make them unmuddied, to point people to the underlying stream rather than the marshy mass that Christians have made of the thing. And then I very much identify with that here in the 21st century as Christians are associated with Trumpism and hardcore conservatives, and I don't want to get too sidetracked on this. But that's what I want to stress here. The message that Tolstoy is giving us is definitely comparable to the problems that we're having today. The issues that he identifies both with art and with his society are issues that we too wrestle with with our art and with our society. The book remains relevant even if we do at the end of the day disagree. But I do want to stress that as much as Tolstoy is giving us a really sort of profound look at our first aesthetic system here, as much as he is sort of building his ideas up from, you know, a vague understanding of these three principles of importance and craft and sincerity to a more structured and systematic understanding of the purpose of art and how what the artist does in creating art and seeking to sort of like communicate with others and bring everybody together, as much as all of that is valuable and important, and I want us to remember it going forward because we're going to hear a lot of other thinkers sort of riffing on these ideas or building on them or rejecting them outright, I also want to emphasize that occasionally Tolstoy does miss the boat here. And as robust as this system is, and as robust as this respect for art may be, I think in his reading of Chekhov's Darling, he totally misses the boat. Like, he once again uses a lot of the same ideas here. He is emphasizing that, once again, Chekhov is unfailingly sincere, unfailingly talented, which, it's Chekhov. Of course he is. He's one of the greatest short story writers who ever lived. Um, admittedly, he wasn't recognized as such by Tolstoy, who was also one of the greatest short story writers who ever lived and came around earlier than Chekhov, so, you know, it is what it is. But we use the same image here. We, in fact, quote directly the passage with Balak and Balaam, and Balaam, you know, admitting that he is, like, that, that he has to bless what must be blessed and curse what must be cursed, and he can't just curse the Israelites because God is protecting them, etc. He is once again invoking that image of the artist being truth-teller despite themselves, and emphasizing that Chekhov is one of these. In Darling, as much as it is meant to be funny, and as much as the character is meant to be ridiculed, Tolstoy stresses that at the end of the day, the main character is sympathetic, relatable, and therefore is ultimately contributing to that underlying goal of moral understanding and so on and so forth. What I want to stress here is that Tolstoy has oversimplified this story. Like, don't get me wrong, I am not an expert on Chekhov, but I just happened to have read George Saunders' reading of Chekhov's Darling in uh, his collection, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, where he literally, like, just reads a bunch of Russian short stories and then, like, takes them apart as a writer. Apparently he's been doing this at Syracuse for years and finally published the book, which I could not buy fast enough and could not read fast enough. But in Darling, Chekhov is doing something considerably more sophisticated than just lampooning or ridiculing this one. As much as, you know, the character is sort of ridiculous, at first we meet her parroting all of the ideas and sort of like 100% devoted to her husband, and then 100% devoted to her next husband slash boyfriend, and then 100% devoted to this child that she ends up taking under her wing. As much as this is kind of ridiculous, Chekhov knows that it's heartfelt. 
Chekhov is aware of, you know, the, the sort of sincerity, the sort of profundity underlying this woman's character. Tolstoy thinks Chekhov is writing a comedy, but what Chekhov is doing is honestly more in line with the likes of someone like Dostoevsky or something more in the lines of like the existentialist writers to come, someone who is in fact writing tragic comedy in some sense, where truth and ridiculousness, where comedy and, you know, dead sincerity, where drama is sort of like executed in this more sophisticated kind of bilateral way. And Tolstoy doesn't seem to get that. Tolstoy is kind of locked into his own perspectives of, you know, this is praising X and ridiculing Y, X is good and Y is bad, therefore the art is good. As much as that formula seems to work, and does seem to work for Maupassant, as well as Semyonov and many of the other writers that Tolstoy talks about, I think Chekhov is doing something more sophisticated, something that Tolstoy himself occasionally does and may or may not be aware of it in some of his later stories, but something that doesn't fit the criteria of what Tolstoy is doing. It admittedly doesn't fall into the category of somebody searching for meaning, though they might. We can't necessarily read Chekhov's mind here. The trick is that the artifice sort of stands in the way of its clarity. Like... I know that I'm using terms that Tolstoy himself used in a very different framework here, but I'm kind of, like, lost for an explanation. Um, that word sophistication or complexity is probably the best one to hang on to here. A work of art can do multiple things simultaneously. It can be more sophisticated than just a polemical tract. And on the one hand, we will see in some of Tolstoy's short stories, clear polemical tracts. God Sees the Truth But Waits is obviously designed as like a purely polemical story. It is just a story used as though it were a sermon to tell us about, hey, just because things suck for you right now doesn't mean that God isn't watching, that God isn't protecting you. But if we look at some of Tolstoy's other stories, something like Master and Man, for example, or something like one of the other stories that it's in the Swim in a Pond in the Rain collection, um, Tolstoy's Alyosha the Pot, um, each of these stories suggests that Tolstoy may actually have those artistic instincts and they may occasionally override his morality and they may actually be more moral than he is aware. Again, what I want to stress here as we look at Tolstoy is this division, this contrast. The fact that on some level, when Tolstoy sits down to do his big philosophical aesthetic project, What is Art?, he is, to some degree, even as robust as it is, oversimplifying the business of doing art. What he is describing does not line up with, weirdly enough, his own art and the greatness of his own art. Tolstoy is apparently doing this instinctively, not consciously. And as much as he is to some degree able to reverse engineer his own writing process, he is also somewhat unsuccessful and fails to recognize the greatness of works that he considers subpar because of their complexity, because there is more sophistication to it, and because it is, at the end of the day, not as clear-cut as God is good, everybody worship God, the end. 
that's one of the things that I really want to explore in this whole lecture series, discussion class, etc. Being a Christian artist, being a moral artist, being an ethical artist must, at the end of the day, be able to accommodate for these wildly exceptional cases. The danger of writing a discussion on the ethics of art is that it will miss some of the things that art is doing by systematizing it. When Tolstoy boils down a work of art implicitly, because he doesn't explicitly say any of this, to it must therefore have a clear moral and it must be expressed clearly and it must therefore be you know recognizable by everyone who reads it, he is kind of ignoring or rejecting a wide body of art and artists that are more complicated than purely doing a moral lesson. To give us a sort of like contemporary example of how this works, I like to think of Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. That work has been criticized for being confused, and I do want to, you know, anticipate that objection and recognize, yeah, it's not perfect. But the reason why most people were criticizing it, besides the confusion argument, which we'll probably come back to at some point in this class, I imagine this won't be the last time I use this example, the primary argument of most people who were reading it looking for a moral was that Jordan Belfort, the character in Scorsese's movie, was not sufficiently punished for his misdeeds. Everybody wanted him to get wrecked. And Scorsese didn't let that happen. But that was the point. What Scorsese was almost certainly arguing was that somehow these debauched, totally immoral, awful people get away with this stuff, do not actually suffer, do not actually go to jail, do not actually watch their empires crumble, but they come back, everybody's influential, everybody's powerful, and everybody's debauched and immoral as before. Our society permits this, even encourages it. And Tolstoy would watch The Wolf of Wall Street, updated, you know, a hundred years, and say this is an immoral work, when it is not nearly that cut and dry. Just as he rejects Chekhov, who is doing something more complicated than merely looking at a person, a character, and saying this is a good character or this is a bad character, this is the good things they do and why they're rewarded for them, this is the bad things they do and why they're punished for them. A more robust understanding of how art works is necessary to understanding moral art. And on the one hand, the temptation is therefore going to be, let's not judge at all. Let's just let art do its thing. Let's let art be for its own sake. You know, in addition to the three sort of attitudes towards art, Tolstoy entertains three sort of erroneous critical lenses, namely one that just looks at its moral or its importance, one that just looks at art for art's sake, and one that just looks at, like, its ability to communicate sincerely and its groundedness. The art for art's sake people are going to largely say, hey, if it's art, it's good, don't ask questions. You know, it has, there is no secondary moral worth, there is no importance, there is no exterior value to art. It is all in a matter of craft. The only question we can reasonably ask a work of art, as far as its morality goes, is, is this well made or is this not well made? And that's oversimplistic, clearly. You can make a well made piece of trash. You can make a well made, you know, 
cynical work, or you can be the Marquis de Sade and, you know, artistically devise a situation where your main character is virtuous and repeatedly punished, and you spend the entire time ridiculing them. I honestly think of Nabokov in this perspective, who will undoubtedly come back to as well. But I think Tolstoy is in the right in saying that there is some exterior value we just need to find a way to reconcile that exterior moral value with the artistic integrity and the business of interpretation at large. I am very hesitant to accept that clarity is the only standard for artistic merit, that it is the only virtue of artistic prose or artistic craft. That's something we're definitely going to push back against. In some ways, Chekhov is very clear. His prose is delightfully plain. His imagery is very evocative. He very clearly communicates to us what we are supposed to feel in a given scene. What he does not do is give us a clear moral. The main character is ridiculous and is sympathetic. We are inclined to empathize with her and to see her as tragic and lost. Her foolishness does lead to misery at the same time as her genuine love leads to happiness. Both, all of these things are true. And that's one thing that art can do that virtually no other medium can. You cannot express that critically, philosophically, or at least not without expending way more words than Chekhov did writing the story in the first place. That's something we have to acknowledge about art, and it's something that Tolstoy misses like a champion. So, for next time, we're going to go deeper. Um, we're going to actually read the first half of Tolstoy's What is Art? Um, we're going to read the first ten chapters, I believe. Um, I think that's where we're going to stop for now. Yes, we're going to end with chapter ten, which I should emphasize is a long discussion of a lot of French poetry, um, and that's going to be sort of the primary place where I'm going to recommend for our supplementary reading for next week. Um, specifically, Tolstoy is going to be quoting some Baudelaire, some Verlaine, some Mallarmé. Um, fortunately, in Elmer Maud's translation, all of the translations into English are included in the appendices, like appendices literally one to three, um, are just like translations of the various poems that are being included here. Um, definitely read those, possibly go read some more Baudelaire and some more Verlaine and some more Mallarmé. Um, I personally am going to finally research Mallarmé because again, like I said, that one's going to be coming up a lot in the future. Hopefully I'll have the book by the time that I record my next lecture, so I'll be more knowledgeable. Um, but definitely get a hold of those. Also, we're going to be talking about Wagner's Ring Cycle, uh, Dainai Belugin Lead, um, which Tolstoy, again, like, he gives us a pretty good take on it. Maud gives us a summary in Appendix 4. I don't know whether the same will be true for whatever edition you're following along with. At any rate, I'd highly recommend you go down and track down at least some of the opera itself. Maybe just the music, like if you've got the instrumental version, Wagner's, you know, mu like composition is gorgeous in that respect. Um, I have always taught part of uh, Gotterdammerung as part of my general humanities class. I think that's still online somewhere. Um, but yeah, like watch the last 10 minutes of the opera because it'll give you probably as much as you need to know of what Tolstoy is both sort of talking about and critiquing here. Um, but yeah, Tolstoy will definitely be ridiculing Wagner pretty soon, so we should we should be on top of that. Um, in addition, I'd recommend go and track down Turgenev's hunting sketches. Uh, we talked about it a little bit today. We're going to talk about it even more later. Um, it's going to get increasingly relevant 
as we go on, because again, this is one of those works that Tolstoy is going to consistently hold up as being good art, especially because it is peasant-driven. Um, I'd also recommend reading some Bible again. Um, Tolstoy frequently talks about the book of Genesis as being a masterwork, and whether or not that's true, it is definitely something that's going to come up a lot, and he's going to use it as an example pretty frequently. Um, so if you're not familiar with Genesis, now's probably a good time. Uh, I'd also recommend getting a little bit more familiar with the 19th century just physical, visual art scene. Um, Tolstoy is going to be talking about a lot of different media in his What is Art discussion. He's going to talk about ballet, he's going to talk about opera, he's going to talk about the theater, he's going to talk about literature, and he's going to talk about the visual arts. The easiest stuff to get familiar with is the visual arts because you can just look at it and it is right there and most of it's all on the internet and takes very little time to search through. Um, at the very least, I'd recommend getting at least a little familiar with Romanticism, Realism, and Impressionism. Um, I have videos on those if you track them down on my YouTube channel. Uh, I Like the 19th century, I usually divide into two parts. Uh, for my general humanities class, but watching the videos on romanticism on the one hand and then realism and impressionism on the other would be a good bet. Um, or just, you know, go look at some paintings. Go, you know, look at the difference between, like, a Manet or a, uh, a Renoir versus the likes of, like, Monet, Van Gogh, Cezanne, etc. Um, because Tolstoy is kind of grumpy about that move from the impressionists. Um, so with that in mind, next time, what is art? First half, again, up through chapter 10. Uh, we'll be talking a lot more about Tolstoy's ideas now that he's making them more robust, more sophisticated, and giving himself more time to sort of articulate what he's thinking. Um, but he isn't going to stray too far from our sort of three-pronged structure that we talked about here. So I am, you know, we'll, we'll call it there for today, and I definitely look forward to talking with you about what is art next week. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress, this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the Internet or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkozlowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year, um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.